All right. Epistle of James. Today we're looking at chapter 3. James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. First, let's review last week, which was James 2, 14 through 26. Talked about faith with no works. And how faith with no works is no profit to you. It would be like Walmart buying some for 50 cents and selling it for the same amount. They never make any money, couldn't afford to pay their employees, couldn't afford to round the building, the mortgage on the building. It would be no profit to them. Uh, faith without works is dead. It's like a corpse. A corpse is no good to anybody but to be eaten up by worms and uh, just wither away in the ground in a coffin. It's all a dead body is good for. Uh, faith without works is demonic because demons have faith. They have good doctrine. But they have no works to back it up. So faith without works is demonic. Faith without works is foolish. It's stupid. It's uh, without purpose. It's void. It's empty. And we saw that the word justification can mean at least two different things. One, declared righteous or positional righteousness where God forgives you of your past sins. And two, shown to be righteous by the person's works. And we looked at the example of Abraham and Rahab regarding the issue. And we also saw that faith without works is like a body without the spirit, just dead. It's just a corpse, like I just said. Okay, now we're looking at James chapter 3, and we'll start in verse 1 and go to verse 12. Let's go ahead and read it here. <clears throat> My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. For we all stumble on many things, if anyone does not stumble in word, he's a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths, that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Look also at ships. Although they are so large and driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder, wherever the pilot desires. Even so, the tongue is a little member, and boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles? And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature and is itself set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird of rep and of reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our God and Father and with it we curse men whom have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. The spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening. Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives, or a grapevine bear figs? Thus no spring yields both salt water and fresh. Okay, my brethren, let not many of you become teachers. According to Ephesians 4.11, God gives the church... The, not the building, but the people who are Christians, he gives them certain people, he gives them gifts to edify, to build the church, to teach the church. And we just go to Ephesians 4.11, just real quick, just to read this, and you'll see uh, the certain people that God gives the church. And he himself, talking about God, talking about Jesus, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. 
So, God gives these people to the body of Christ. Now, not everyone's going to fall into one of these categories. Some people aren't called to do any of these things. Okay, so Ephesians 4, 11 and 12 is talking about <clears throat> these different people who are given to the church for the equipping of the saints or the Christians for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So, the, God gives these kind of people to the church to help them. But not everyone is supposed to be a teacher. Okay? Let not many of you become teachers. So, being a teacher is something you just say, okay, well, like in, like in a, a regular traditional sized church where they have this meeting on Sunday, they'll say something like, well, we need Sunday school teachers. Someone just volunteer. And people just volunteer without even seeing if, that's, if they're gifted to be a teacher. But you need to make sure you're gifted to be a teacher. God's called you to be a teacher before you step up and start teaching stuff. Our words are important. Our words have effect. We saw a couple weeks ago that, that there's power of life and death in the tongue. So we need to make sure that we're, if, if, if we're going to teach, we're called to be teaching. And if we're going to teach, we're studying the short so we proved. Because, listen, in the second part of the verse, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. Now going back to this calling as teacher, let's turn to Hebrews 5.12 for a second. Hebrews 5, it's just one book back. Hebrews 5.12. And I just said to you that you should make sure you're called to be a teacher first before you step out and do it. Not just anybody should get up and teach. Uh, it's a very important thing, a very privileged thing, and it's a very dangerous thing if done improperly. But here's the opposite end of the spectrum here. Ephesians, uh, Hebrews 5.12 For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principle of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. So there are some people who God is calling to be a teacher, but they're not stepping into their calling because they're still drinking milk instead of solid food. I mean, what do you think if, if Eli, the rest of his life, just wanted to uh, have milk instead of eating steak and potatoes and hamburgers and all the things that we eat? We think, well, I, I'd be sad. I'd want him to grow up. And that's how God feels like a, a people who just sit around and soak it in and soak it in and soak in the teaching of the Word, word of God, but they don't give it out, give it out like God's calling them to. So there are two different things here. If you're called to be a teacher, you better do it. But if you're not called to be a teacher, you better not do it. Because you will receive stricter judgment. And this brings up the principle of judging according to knowledge. God judges according to knowledge. Now if God judges according to knowledge, and someone's called to be a teacher, someone's standing in front of me like I'm doing right now, teaching people. Doesn't that teacher, if he's teaching people, going to have the most knowledge? He's trying to give it to others. I mean, if you go to a public school, and I go to a history class, my history teacher should be the most knowledgeable person in history in that school, at least from my grade level. You go to English class, they're knowledgeable in the English language. That's why I trust them to teach me these things. When I went to college, I had a history class, I had Bible classes. And I'm expecting the person up front to have more knowledge than me. Otherwise, if I have more knowledge than them, can I learn anything from them? No. So the teacher is going to have the most knowledge. And because he has the most knowledge, he'll be the most accountable to God. And having knowledge is really can be dangerous. Because if you have knowledge, but you don't obey that knowledge, you bring greater condemnation upon yourself. The greater knowledge you have, the greater responsibility you have 
Because you have all this knowledge, you're required to obey. So the more you learn God's word, the more you're growing in grace, the more you're required to obey God, the more you draw closer to God and, what, and being what he wants you to be. Let's, let's just look at some passages, though, to back up what I'm talking about. Luke chapter 12. And we'll start in verse 47. The Lord Jesus speaking here. Twelve forty-seven says, And that servant who knew his master's will, there's knowledge right there, and did not prepare himself, or do, according to the, or do according to his will, there's the lack of obedience there that the knowledge has, shall be beaten with many stripes. But he who did not know, lack of knowledge, yet committed things deserving of stripes, the same disobedience, but he has a lack of knowledge, shall be beaten with how many? Few. For anyone to whom much, much is given, to whom much is given from him, much will be required. And to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask the more. So you see this principle here of knowledge, more knowledge, equals more accountability. More knowledge, lack of obedience to the knowledge, equals greater condemnation. Many stripes, stricter judgment. Uh, turn to Matthew chapter 11. Lord Jesus again speaking here. Starting in verse 20. Then he began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. So there's more mighty works being done in the cities, they did not repent. And this is why he's rebuking them. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. So here we have these great works being done in these two cities, Chorazin and Bethsaida. And he said, if these things were done in Tyre and Sidon, which means they weren't done there, so less great works done there, they would have repented. Because you're not repenting, they didn't receive this knowledge, they're not repenting, you'll have greater condemnation on judgment day than they will because you have all this great works being done in your sight. They go on, it says, in you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven will be brought down to Hades, which is hell. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, which was destroyed by fire, would remain until this day. But I say to you that it should be more tolerable for the land of Sodom than they have done than for you. Now what does that say about them? Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed by fire from heaven. God wiped them off the face of the planet. And he's saying to the city that's still around that they'll have a worse judgment day than Sodom. Because they had all these great works done in them. They might not be going off into homosexuality and lots of depravity like Sodom was, but they have a lot more knowledge. They had the Lord himself in their midst doing mighty works. And then to Matthew chapter 12, verse 41. The men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it. Because Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah. And indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and indeed a greater than Solomon is here. So the Lord Jesus Christ is preaching, giving his wisdom. People are not repenting. 
And these two people who, who the people of Nineveh who repented at Jonah's preaching, which surely wasn't as good as Jesus' preaching, and Jonah had a wrong attitude throughout the whole pr process. You can see by his attitude at the end where he wanted God still to destroy Nineveh even though they repented. And the Queen of the South, Queen of Sheba, she came to hear Solomon. And yet, people are, Jesus is bringing his wisdom. People aren't coming to hear him. He's bringing his wisdom to them, not repenting. So they'll have greater condemnation. So we have this principle, as you can see, all throughout the Bible. Just showed you a few passages there of greater knowledge equals greater responsibility. And lack of obedience to that knowledge equals, equals greater condemnation. Okay, so that's why you shouldn't be a teacher. Being a teacher, you have to learn. I mean, I study, I mean, you can look at my Bible here from the book of James, all these notes I have here in my Bible. I write these notes down as I'm studying. So I do a lot of studying. And we go back, let me go back to the book of Galatians. Now, this is not, I'm not boasting about it. I'm just showing you how this works here. Book of Galatians, you can see all the notes I put there. Now, there's notes all throughout the book of Galatians. I'm making these notes as I go along as I'm studying the book of Galatians to teach you guys. So when you study, you learn. And I learn something Every week I'm learning new things I didn't know before. Okay? So you shall receive stricter judgment. Verse 2 says, For we all stumble in many things. Let me just stop there for a second. We all stumble in many things. Now this is something that a, maybe a Calvinist, or someone who thinks we have to sin every day, they'll use this one verse, one part of this one verse, and say, look, we can't stop sinning. We have to sin. And look, James even including himself in this, we... We all stumble in many things. And stumble doesn't mean like you tripped on accident. The word there actually means sin. You've sinned. You transgressed God's law. But I think what James is doing here, he's using this, this mode of, of language that we often see used. Like, for example, let's just say Carrie Ann was cranky yesterday. And I say to Carrie Ann, my, aren't we cranky today? Am I saying that I'm cranky too? Or am I just saying she's cranky? Just her. But it's a, it's a mode of using the word we that doesn't really include myself, but I'm still talking directly to her. Oftentimes when I preach in a church, I may say, America is just so, we're, just, we're so sinful here in America. We're so sinful. But I'm here preaching in front of the church. Am I including myself in that? No, I'm not including myself. I'm not saying I'm sinful. I'm just including myself. I'm part of America. It's simple as that. So, and this can, be a, this can be a difficult thing to do if the people you're speaking to don't know you. If the people you're speaking to don't know your character, or they don't have the rest of the word to base it on, to look at the word of God and say, well, Jesus says, let's tell us to stop sinning, he has the ability to stop sinning, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. All these other verses, we don't have all these other verses to back up that this is not really what James is saying here. There might be confusion. Uh, or if I were to go in the open air, where people don't know me, most people who hear me in the opening of this lost sinners I'm preaching to, I go to Lexington tonight, and I always say, man, we're all so sinful. They'd probably say to me, well, why are you out here preaching then if you're so sinful? Because they don't know my character. They, 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 they might actually think that I'm including myself in the process. But just from the, the rest of James' letter we've read already, we know he's not including himself in that. Okay? Uh, so we all stumble in many ways, in many things. And then he goes on to say, if anyone does not stumble in word, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. So even the second part of this verse dismantles some people's interpretation of the first part, that we have to sin, we can't stop sinning. Well, he's saying, well, listen, if you'll, if you'll bridle your tongue, if you're able to bridle what you speak, you can, your whole body's in check. 
And bryosome means control. If you can control what comes out of your mouth, which we've seen is very hard to do, and we'll see through this passage, James is trying to tell us it's very hard to do, the, to, to have total control over your tongue, this smallest muscle in your body, probably the most powerful muscle in your body. It's hard to do, but if you can do that, chances are you probably have your whole body in check. It does, this is not even a, uh, a full principle where it's saying, if you have your tongue checked, then the rest of your body is definitely in check. Because I've known people who are able to keep their tongue in check, but they don't have the rest of their body in check. He's simply saying the tongue's a hard thing to control, and if you can control that, then sure, you, you can be a perfect man. And perfect man simply means a mature man, a perfect man, you're, you're mature to the point, as far as you could possibly go at this point in time, you're perfect in God's sight, you're perfect according to the knowledge you have, that's what it means. So someone can be perfect. Okay. So you can, bridle means control here, you can bridle your whole body, if you can control your tongue, then you're able to control your whole body. And then he goes on to give lots of examples here that we've kind of already discussed a little bit. He says, indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Now, I asked this before. I'll ask it again. How small is a bit? Yeah, probably about that small. How big is a horse? Really big. But with that one little bit, we're able to control the whole body. A big old animal. We're able to control that whole animal. And this is going back again, once again. Your tongue's small. If you can control this, you can control your whole body. You can have self-control. And what is self-control? It's a fruit of the... Spirit. That's right. Fruit of the Spirit. People often are, who we know, who are even are Christians, they're often uh, baffled that we try to teach our children self-control. But if you can have self-control, uh, then the rest of this, the supposed sins you could probably commit wouldn't be a problem. Because you're controlling yourself. So it's good to have self-control. So we're able to control a horse by a bit. We're able to control our whole body, which is controlling the tongue. Look also at ships. Although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. Now your dad would have more experience in this area than I would. But we look at a huge ship. Maybe you can tell us, Sean, a proportion here. How small is a rudder compared to the rest of the ship? displaced 8,000 tons. It was almost 1,000 feet long, and the rudder was about 25 feet long. So you got 25 feet compared to 1,000 feet. So that's 2.5% of the whole ship is what it is. So that, that's pretty small. That's about the portion your tongue is to the rest of your body. Okay? So, but this one little small rudder can turn the whole ship if it's used properly. If it's not used properly, you might have an action like the Titanic, where they're not looking out, they turn too late, they crash into an iceberg, they're going down. But if a rudder is used properly, and of course back then they didn't really have motors back in James time, they just had wind, that's why I said the winds can, the, these strong winds blow. But now we have motors too. But this rudder controls which way you go, yes? I'm sorry, they had slave motors. Right, I mean, I mean electric motors, yeah. So yeah, so you turn by so this big ship is turned by a very small rudder, just like the body is turned by a very small tongue if not used properly. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. Now this doesn't mean that every tongue boasts great things. He's simply giving a general principle here, as as you see in wisdom literature like the Proverbs, uh, 
Baton can boast great things. A little muscle can boast great things. See how great a forest, a little fire kindles. They have this big forest, huge forest, and thousands of acres. And campers go out to camp in this forest. They start a forest fire, or campus, a campfire, and they go to sleep in the tent, forgot to put it out. It starts to spread. Eventually, hundreds of acres are on fire. But how did it start? It started out as a big fire, it started out as a small fire. And that small fire even, maybe was started by a match. A little stick with a red thing on the end of it. And now it's lighting all these huge sticks of wood with green all over them. And it's burning them up. And that's what the comparison is once again here, is your tongue, if you don't control it properly, can light the rest of you on fire. Literally, if you die in your sins and go to hell for your sins. That's the comparison here. So if they... But if people do, can people do campfires properly? Yeah, they don't, they don't have to. I mean, you can, people don't, don't outlaw camp. I mean, when these things happen in forest fires, they don't outlaw campfires altogether, do they? No. They, they tell them you've got to do it properly. You put it out with water. Put some sand on it. Have rocks around it in order to contain it the way it's supposed to be contained. So if your tongue is used properly, it will... Be used rightly, just like a campfire is done properly, and you'll have no problems. And the tongue is a, in verse 6, the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. Let's just stop right there for a second. Is the tongue itself a fire? Is the tongue, this piece of flesh right here, this muscle, is it, is it self sinful? No, it's amoral. A tongue is an instrument. That can be used in a moral way or an immoral way. Just like a, uh, a match. can be used to start a campfire and maybe cook some fish over it, warm some hands, warm some bodies. Or a match can be used to burn down a house. Larceny. Which is wicked. It's a crime to burn down someone else's property. So the tongue itself is not a fire, a world of iniquity, but it can be used to be a world of iniquity. You know, gossip spreads... Like wildfire. I once heard a story of this pastor who had this woman in his church spread rumors about him. Church probably about 2,000 people in size. Spreading rumors about him. She later found out they weren't true. He didn't say anything to her. She, she went to him and apologized. And he said, well, I appreciate your apology. I accept your apology. I forgive you. Um, but the damage has been done. He said, what you've done is like taking a feather pillow and going on a windy day on Chica in Chicago, downtown Chicago, which Chicago is called Windy City. Really windy there. And busting open this feather pillow on a windy day in a corner of Chicago and letting it go and then picking up two days, trying to find all those feathers two days later. Is that going to be possible? Or it's like taking 500 balloons, releasing them into the air, and then two days later going to tra track down all 500 balloons. Is that going to happen? No. That's why we need to control our tongue. Making fun of people is wrong. Making fun of the way they look, how much they weigh, uh, what the color of their skin is, what their background is, uh, what their abilities are, you're slower on fashion, all this stuff. We need to keep a tight ring on our tongue and make sure we're using our tongue properly. 
So it continues in verse 6. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the whole course of nature or the whole course of existence and is itself set on fire by hell. So the tongue itself isn't set on fire by hell, but if it's used improperly, it is set on fire by hell. The tongue itself, like I said, is just a piece of muscle in your mouth. It can be used rightly or uh, used improperly. Just like a knife in the kitchen. You use it to cut up some tomatoes to feed somebody, or you can use it to kill somebody. But the knife itself is not evil. But a knife itself, we could be saying the same thing about us. It is set on fire by hell if you're killing someone with it. But if you're chopping up some tomatoes with a knife, it's not set on fire by hell. It's not being used in a sinful way. If every kind of beast and bird and of reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by man. Now, not every animal has been tamed by man. See, this is what we're doing here. We're, we're, with James, we have what you call, I read on the board here for you, wisdom literature. It's very uh, similar to the book of, of Proverbs, where in Proverbs you have a lot of short, powerful statements. But these short, powerful statements aren't always universal. Okay, like one short statement is this um, in Proverbs. Train a child in the way they should go, and when they're old, they will not depart from it. Now a parent can be perfect in training their child. But does that child have a choice later on to serve Christ or not? They sure do. So that, that, that verse can only be taken so far. It's not a guarantee that if you're perfect in raising your child, they're going to be a Christian. It's not, it's not saying that. And that's what we have here in the book of James a lot of times. It's very uh, close to the wisdom literature. Short, pithy statements, powerful statements, but they're not universal. Every kind of beast and bird? I don't think, I don't think we ever uh, tamed some dinosaurs. Okay? I find that very hard to believe. But I don't think every creature has been tamed by man. But a lot of the big ones have. Elephants, they're used by man. Horses. Even killer whales are in SeaWorld. Dolphins. You know, so these animals have been tamed by man. And the point here is, how can we tame all these animals that have their own will, they want to do what they want to do, but uh, down in verse 8, but no man can tame the tongue. We aren't taming our tongue. There's something wrong with that. Tame these huge creatures that have their own will. And we're breaking their will. And we're taming them, we're training them. But people, most people, are not taming their tongue like they should. This small little muscle. You, you don't need anyone else's help. You don't need uh, a, the uh, consent of an animal's will for your tongue to be tamed. You need to see the consent of your own will for your tongue to be tamed. And this ought not to be so. Now, once again, verse 8 is not saying that the tongue cannot be tamed. What, what does it go, say in, in James chapter 1 and verse 26? If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Yeah, so everyone's religion is useless then, right? No. No man can tame the tongue. Simply, I think it's simply saying that uh, maybe in his own power he can't tame it. With Christ's strength we can tame it. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And uh, of course, if the man has a wicked heart, he's not going to tame his tongue. So it's not saying... With a universal statement, the tongue cannot be tamed. Let me just show you some other verses too. Let's go to Proverbs chapter 10 and verse 20. 
Proverbs 10.20 says this, The tongue of the righteous is choice silver. The heart of the wicked is worth little. So the tongue of the righteous is choice silver. That's pretty important. They must be taming their tongue if it's choice silver. So the righteous man tames his tongue. And then Psalm 39 and verse 1. says this, this is David speaking, I said I will guard my ways, lest I sin with my tongue, I will restrain my mouth with a muzzle while the wicked are before me. So he's going to tame his tongue. He's going he to guard his way, lest he sin with his tongue, I will restrain my mouth with a muzzle. Now what does a muzzle do to an animal? Holds it closed. And that's a force. But he's saying, my mouth will be as if it has a muzzle on it. I'm going to control it. And that's what David said. Alright, so, the tongue itself, like I said in verse 8, it says it's an unruly evil full of deadly poison. But it's not talking about every person's tongue. It's probably simply talking about the wicked person's tongue. We're not destined for defeat in this area. In fact, he exhorts us to do otherwise before, and we'll see here in a minute. Psalm 34.13 says this, Keep your tongue from evil, and your lips from speaking deceit. Psalm 34.13 So the whole Bible exhorts us to control our tongue, and if it exhorts us to control our tongue, but we cannot do it, that makes no sense. So the tongue itself, like I said, it's, not, it's, not, it's the tongue itself full of deadly poison, but the tongue used wrongly will be full of poison. Verse 9 says, With it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. And once again, we have the word we here. Is James once again saying that he is cursing men? Uh, that, and and now, now, I want you to pay attention here to this verse 9, because this is a really important verse doctrinally. Are men, all men, made in the likeness of God? Yes. Yes. If all men are made in the likeness of God, how can any man be born a sinner? If they're made in the likeness of God. And the whole point here is we're cursing men who, and this is the reason why it's wrong to curse men, according to James. They're made in the likeness of God. They have intrinsic value. They have importance just by being made in the likeness of God. That's one of the reasons they have importance and value. Verse 10 says, Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. And listen to what it says in the last part here. My brethren, these things ought not be so. So he's exhorting, listen, this shouldn't be this way. If this is necessary with your mouth, what does James 1.26 say? Your religion is worthless. Worthless, useless. Verse 11. Do the spring send forth fresh water and bitter water from the same opening? Now let me just, this word, you have bitter there. I think it really should be translated a different way personally, but I'm going to give you the Greek word here on the board. Okay. That's the Greek word for, uh, for bitter there. Well, I'm sorry, for fresh. For fresh. And this is glucose. And uh, what English word do you think we get from that? 
Glucose, that's right, glucose. And what is glucose? Sugar. It's sweet sugar. Okay? So the word fresh here, the word fresh here, if we're going to, because he's trying to contrast two different words here. Bitter, sweet. Bitter and sweet. So I think fresh here in verse 11 should really be sweet in context. It can be translated as fresh, but it, it means sweet. The word uh, literally means sweet. So we're contrasting, bitter and sweet are the, the biggest contrast you can have. Bitter, sweet, two diff totally different things, okay? But can you get out of the same spring sweet and bitter? No, it can't produce the same, two, uh, one thing can't produce two opposite things. It doesn't happen that way. It's either going to produce sweet or bitter. Honey, it's sweet. Uh, what's one thing that's bitter? Horseradish. It's bitter. Okay? They're two opposites. But they don't come from the same source. Okay? That's what he's trying to say. So we shouldn't be having poison coming out of our tongue at the same time praising God. That's what Jesus said in Matthew 15. These people draw near me with their lips. They praise me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. So we have this word glucose, and we get glucose from it. So it means sweet. And in verse 12, Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives, or a grapevine bear figs? And the word grapevine there can actually just mean vine. I mean, you're talking about olives here. Olives don't come from a grapevine. Grapes come from a grapevine. But olives do come from a vine. Now, this is something you might not know before. It's something I didn't know before until I studied it. Olives really can't be eaten right off the vine. They're very, very bitter. Very bitter in taste. But figs are very sweet, very good in taste. But when it comes to olives, except for one kind of olive, I can't remember the name of it, that can be eaten off the vine, all the other olives are bitter. You have to either cure them or ferment them before you can eat them. That's why you see olives in the stores, they have some kind of, they're in some kind of liquid. They've been fermented or cured in that liquid, and now they're, they're, you know, they're good to eat. Otherwise, you would never want to eat an olive. But olives do have a lot of good nutritional value from what I understand. So a fig tree which produces figs, a sweet, a sweet fruit, will not produce a bitter fruit, olives. And these vines that produce these bitter olives will not produce this sweet fruit called figs. Thus no spring yields both, now this is different now, both salt water and fresh. Now the word for, uh, for salt here is different from the word for bitter, in verse 11. So he's changing, he's not saying the same thing he said in verse, 10, uh, verse 11, he's saying a totally different thing. The word for uh, salt here is a totally different word than it is for bitter up in verse 11, so it actually means salt and fresh water. The word for fresh here is the same word as it was in verse 11, that translated as fresh, but once again, I think we're, we're, if we're going in context here, translating a Greek word to an English word, it's, he's trying to contrast here. Sweet, bitter, fresh, salty. Now you go to this, you go to a spring nearby or a pond nearby, that's a freshwater spring or a freshwater pond. Is it going to produce salt water too? And most animals, some animals can adjust, actually adapt over time, but most animals, if they're salt water, they can't go to freshwater too. Now, the question is how did the salt water get here? I, I think it happened during the flood. And I think all animals were at one point in time freshwater fish. But because of the flood, they adapted, they changed. 
And I, if I understand right from watching a Dr. Hoven video, he chronicled one of his ministry supporters taking a, I think a goldfish, and slowly but surely over time making it into a saltwater goldfish. By adding a little bit of salt over time, and, and finally it became a saltwater tank that the fish would live in and became a saltwater fish. So it shows the adaption there. Okay, so let's go back over this for a second. Bits in horse's mouth. We can tame a horse, we can make it do whatever we want with this one little bit, we should control our tongue. A small rudder changes a whole huge ship. And same thing will happen if we don't control our tongue. A, a big force is put on a fire by it, it starts a little fire. So there's our life if we don't control our tongue. The tongue itself is not wicked or evil, but can be used in a wicked and evil way. Uh, the tongue can be tamed, that's why he tells us this ought not to be so, and that a man can tame his he uh, can bridle his tongue, and if he, is, he does, he's a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. That a man who does not control his tongue, is, his religion is worthless or useless. And that a tongue that does both things, a hypocritical tongue, is like a spring that brings forth sweet and bitter water, or salty and fresh water, or like a tree that has olives and figs on it, or like a tree that has, maybe has lemons and apples on it. It's impossible. Impossible. So, either you're going to be a hypocrite, which means you're a sinner, you're not really serving God because of the way you're using your tongue, or you're going to use your tongue properly, and you're going to use it, either it's going to be all fresh water, all sweet water, all figs, it'll be tamed, and, uh, you know, if we can tame all these animals, we should be able, we should tame our tongue. All right. A little shorter this week, I think. Anyone have any questions? I think, they've, I think they've taken the analogy too far. Um, obviously, we, we consider sweet better than bitter. Uh, but the point is, either you need to be sweet or bitter. You can't be both. Uh, just like in, when, it, when he says, uh, lukewarm, I want you to be hot or cold. People often say, well, hot means hot for Jesus, and cold means you're cold in the faith. No, hot and cold are both good there. And if you know the background of that verse, uh, there's this water that's being pumped to this city. It's been pumped in two different cities. One that has these great hot springs, one that has this cool, refreshing water. And by the time it's pumped to the city from either from here or here, it's lukewarm, which is good for nothing. You can't take a hot bath in it, which is supposed to heal, and you can't drink fresh water, it's just lukewarm. You know, so the, the point in that verse, and in these verses that the person is making, is you need to be one or the other. It's not saying bitter is bad. I mean, olives aren't bad for you. And fig, uh, figs aren't better for you than olives. They may taste better in your mouth. Uh, but olives are good for you. They have a lot of nutritional value. But simply saying, listen, you need to be one or the other. You need to be hot or cold. If you're in Revelation, you need to be uh, fresh or sweet or bitter. Fresh or salty. You know, in, in the book of Matthew, Jesus uses salt in a good way. If the salt loses its saltiness, then it has no value but to be trampled on by man. 
You know, so we should be light and salt in this world. But people take those analogies too far. They, they want to impose their own interpretation upon it, but he's simply just making two comparisons. That the same source can't produce these two things. Just like the same source, a Christian tongue, shouldn't produce gossip and praise. That's the point here. So he's not saying bitter, and, bitter is bad and sweet is good, or fresh is good and, and salty is bad, or the figs are good and the olives are bad. It's simply saying, look, you can't produce both here. It's going to be one or the other. And people take the analogy too far. They often do that. Yeah. 